the chatter and hear the buzz? I just feel like you're getting louder as I get louder. We'll all get louder. Everybody get louder. Woo! It's a party. I hope to hear this much excitement during the sermon. It is great to hear. You really are a talkative bunch today. That is, that is wonderful. I'm glad to, glad to hear that. I know that time is not the most comfortable for some of us in the room, but I really do think just the the quick little conversations that we have are beyond meaningful, and they, uh, they really do more probably than we know. If I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. We are going to be in Luke chapter 15. We've been here for a few weeks. We'll be here for um, probably a few more. Very well-known uh, chapter. If you've been around the church uh, any amount of time, page 874 in the Bibles, I I love this chapter. If, if I could only have, I, I praise God that we have the whole Bible, but if I could only have one chapter, it might be Luke chapter 15. There's so much, so much in it. Um, before we hear from our glorious King speaking to us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking. I ask that you prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls, even our bodies to just be really receptive. Help us know how famished we actually are, how much we actually shrivel apart from hearing from your word. You've given us a feast here today. I pray that we leave this place satisfied and yet always wanting more of you. This text um, will likely confront us in some ways, but we're so grateful that in Christ it will never condemn us. And even when you confront us, it's always for the purpose that we might love you better and to love others better, that we might be more free in who we are in Christ, that we might flourish. Father, what every single person in this room needs most, whether they've known you for 22 years, whether they just met you four weeks ago, or whether they don't even know why they're here this morning, God, what we need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more convinced in what he's done, more full of hope with what he promises to do. So we ask you that by the work of the Spirit that you would lift Jesus up, that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We'll start up at... Verse 1 through 3 of Luke chapter 15, and then we'll jump down to verse 11 through the end of, of the chapter. This is God's wonderful, flawless word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, the him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come home. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Feel free to grab a seat. A number of weeks ago, we went through verses 4 through 10, which are also about lost things. This entire chapter is about something being lost, a, a sheep that goes wandering off, a cone that, that disappears, and now this young son that wanders off. If we, we, we phrase it a little different, we could say this whole chapter is about things not being in the place they're supposed to be. We see a sheep not where it's supposed to be, a coin where it's not supposed to be. We see a young brother where he's not supposed to be, but we also see an older brother where he's not supposed to be. Instead of being at the party, he's off on the sides. He's angry. Jesus' parable, parable parallels, uh, Jesus' parable parables, pick of peppers, um, <laughs> two audiences. The verses one and two lay out these, these two groups. You have sinners and tax collectors, which is just another category of notorious sinners that were despised at this time. And they're represented by this young son who disrespects the father, who wanders off into his land, who squanders everything he has with reckless living. That's the sinners and tax collectors. But the Pharisees and scribes are also figured in this parable. They are the older son. Um, something really important to understand is that Pharisees were not despised at this time. Now, you call someone pharisaical at this point, that is an insult. But at this time, to be called a Pharisee was a, was a, a, a title of honor, of cultural status. It had cachet and value. One scholar calls them the popular party of the middle class. 
In today's terms, this would be someone who is right-leaning politically, so on the conservative side, very committed to their local church. Their attendance is impeccable. They even show up to like the Wednesday night prayer meeting. They're highly moral. If you go check their browser history, it's always clean. Their kids are really well-behaved. You know, this is the kind of family, when they come to church, you're like, how did you get your kids to behave that way? That was the Pharisees. In short, they were good, moral, put-together church folk. John Piper, in his article, The Blinding Effects of Serving God, says it like this. He says, this is a passage for longtime churchgoers. This is a passage for people who don't struggle as much with running from God as they struggle with condemning those who do. This is a passage for people who tend to think of other people who need this passage. (laughs) And we could extend what Piper is, is saying and just ask this question, like, who is the primary audience for this parable? Why did Jesus tell these stories in verses one through three? Again, tell us. Now, the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors, those who were marginally put out of what would have been the church, who would have been seen as despised and ridiculous and immoral and all those things. Now, to hear of the love of the father for this wayward son, that he sees him in all of his filth and junk, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, that he, that he welcomes him back in, and he restores him. Oh, my goodness, that had to be such a comfort to them, no matter how messed up we are. No matter how much we rebel from God, oh, he'll, he'll, he'll take us back. But I would suggest to you that's not the primary audience. It's actually the Pharisees. If you look at the text, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. He was dining with them, eating with them. That was a sign of acceptance. And what happened is the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the, the, the high-standing, upper-middle-class spiritual people, were grumbling. Or it can also be translated, they were muttering. They're just, muttering. They're just so disgusted by what Christ was doing. And so then the text tells us because of that, Jesus told these stories. John, or Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, says it like this. He says, the elder brothers of the world desperately need to see themselves in this mirror. Jesus aimed this parable primarily at the Pharisees to show them who they were and to urge them to change. The young brother knew he was alienated from the father, but the elder brother did not. That's why elder brother lostness is so dangerous. Elder brothers don't go to God and beg for healing for their condition. They see nothing wrong with their condition. And that can be fatal. If you know you are sick, you may go to a doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you won't. You just die. Just stay outside the party. Miss out on God's grace. Now, many of the words, if you've read through what are known as the Gospels, these accounts of Christ's life and death and resurrection, you'll see Jesus' interaction with this group called the Pharisees, and most often his interaction came with very sharp words, hard words, but not always. And these verses in verse 15 are so tender. The same father for the wandering son is the same father for the grumbling son. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at, kind of take this, this elder brother, and we're going to look at some attributes, some, do a sort of case study and hold it up as a mirror for us to see where we might see ourselves in this text. And one of the things that helps us to be able to receive this is to hear the heart of the Father, not just for the wanderers, but for the self-righteous. We see it in verse 20, for those that wander in these five verbs of the father, he sees his son from a long way off and he feels compassion. It wells up in him right away and he can't wait to embrace his son. So he runs to him and he falls upon his neck, just gives him the biggest hug and begins to kiss him. 
But the father was also tender with the older son who was so angry. They're at the party. He notices his older son isn't there, so he goes off. He goes to find him. And then one of the first things he does is the father just absorbs the venom of the son. The, the older son starts as he says, look. It's like, look, you. Look what you've, look what you've done. Look how you, that's what the son does. He goes through this, like, this, this diatribe. He just begins to rant against the father, and the father just absorbs it. He's entreating his son. He's very affectionate with him. He comes and he says, oh, my son. And what's interesting about that word is, it's the ninth occurrence of the word son in this text, but, but it's actually a different word. If you go back and you look at the previous eight, it's a specific word, translated son, but this word, this last word, it actually means child, my child. It's actually more affectionate. He's coming with tenderness to try to get his hard-hearted son to come into the party, and he's gracious. He looks and says, son, you've always been with you. I've, I've seen your hard work. I've seen that you've been dutiful. All that is mine is yours. He's saying, you don't, it's yours already. It's okay if you see yourself in the elder brother of this story. In fact, I would suggest to you, it's not just okay, it's good because to the extent that we see it is the extent that God's grace can come and minister us so that we don't spend our lives outside the party grumbling. Verse 28 is so unbelievably sad. He hears this news. They come and they tell him. You know, he hears, he hears music and he hears dancing. I mean, this was a big celebration. They tell him about his brother that was lost and is now back. He's safe and sound. And the elder brother is angry and refuses to go in. The, the question is, as you see this picture, how does somebody get that way? His brother was gone. He was missing. His father had been dishonored, had been hurt. Your brother's back. Your father's obviously okay, he's throwing him a party, he's forgiven him, but you're staying outside the doors. Why wouldn't you go in? How does someone get this way? Um, how might we get this way? We don't have to wonder. The son's words in verses 29 and 30 actually show us. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as he begins to rant at his father, we actually see what was going on in the heart of the son. One of my favorite songs that we sing as a church, we sing it regularly, is the song Grace Alone. In each of the verses, they walk through our, our need for God's grace and our need for the work of Christ, and then it culminates with like this punchline statement. So each of them, it, it goes to a line. So, I am a child of God by grace and grace alone. I am born again by grace and grace alone. I'm heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone. Stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. The son in our story would hate that song. He'd want to modify that phrase. He would say, it is not by grace and grace alone, it is by grit and grit alone. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed one of your commands. The word for served there actually means slaved. I have slaved for you. Time and time again, the son has changed the relationship of a son to a father, to a slave, to a master. He says, you're just issuing commands all the time. It's a way of thinking of God as just a, a command giver who's not gracious, who's waiting for us to fail, serving out of a place of fear 
The idea of slaving is one of being forced to do something, being required to do something. It's not one of being drawn or attracted to do something. It's being a Christian. It's, it's waking up early. It's brewing the coffee. It's caring for your kids. It's volunteering at altar. It's doing whatever we do out of a sense of duty with no delight. In 2008, Welch, the grape juice company, they commissioned a study to, to calculate the average number of hours that a stay-at-home mom works each week. I would imagine this is the same for stay-at-home dads, but they did it with, with moms. They surveyed 2,000 moms with kids between the ages of 5 and 12. And what they found is that the typical mom is on the job. They clock in at 6.30 or 6.23 a.m. And they clock out, on average, at 8.31 p.m. Some of you in the room is like, it's earlier and it's later. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, some of you are like, yeah, but that's a 14-hour shift, but there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of downtime. Well, actually, they asked that question. What they found is the average stay-at-home mom, average, yours might be more or less, the average is they get slightly more than one hour total me time in that 14-hour stretch. So that ends up working out to approximately 91 hours a week but the pay is fantastic. <laughs> well, but the people you're serving are always really grateful for it. <laughs> right? It's hard work. It's long work. It's not always very thanked uh, work. There's a lot of ingrateful people as you're doing this work. Why? Why would anybody sign up for this? Love. Mama just loves her kids. Now, sometimes it's not because of love, right? There's, we're mixed bags of people for sure. But deep down, it's love. You have desire and affection for this child, and so you're willing to serve and to serve and to serve. And that's the reality is that the, the problem with an elder brother is on the surface, it can look the exact same as someone who's serving out of joy. It can look like sacrifice and discipline and generosity and giving. But what's going on in the heart? What's driving it? Are we slaving for God or are we serving our Father? Are we slaving for God, trying to earn what is so freely given in Christ? If we slave for God, we're going to end up grumbling and bitter and angry and exhausted and resentful, just like the son in this story. This is a sort of like white knuckle Christianity. It's by my grit, by my effort. Give you another aspect of the sun. One of the nastiest, I will call it that, the nastiest exports from American Christianity is something known as the prosperity gospel. This is a, a gospel that has been exported as a false gospel, but it is a gospel that has been exported to all corners of this globe. Um, and what it is, in short, is the, the error that God wants to make everybody healthy and wealthy if we would only have enough faith. God will make you materially well off if you believe enough and in the right ways. I saw an example of this this last week. I was reading an article, and it was, um, it was set place in a West African wedding. And 
But after hours of music and, and dancing, uh, they, they were kind of like pre-funking before the ceremony. So there's music and dancing, and the pastor then stands up and kind of calls people together, and the bride and groom come forward, and they're doing the, the wedding ceremony, and they get to the place of the vows, and the pastor looks at the groom and says, okay, now I would like you to repeat after me. And he looks at the groom, and he says, um, repeat after me, you know, look at your bride, say, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for richer or poor. And the groom, as he's repeating, he gets that line, he kind of smirks. And he says, for rich or richer. And everyone at the party laughs and erupts. And the pastor, a little bit unnerved, he begins again. He says, for, repeat after me, for richer or poor. And the groom kind of defiantly now looks at him and says, for rich or richer. That's the prosperity gospel. The groom had been steeped in it. Life only had two options for a faithful Christian, rich or richer, good or great. Things are wonderful or things are stupendous. There's no place for anything ever not being that way. Now, I don't know anyone in our church, I really don't, that completely buys into the prosperity gospel, but it does not mean that it doesn't sneak and seep into our lives in lots of sneaky ways. Listen to the son's words, I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat. Now we know why the son had been slaving away. To get something from God. He was trying to control God, trying to put God, trying to put his father in a debt before him so that he would give him the things that he actually wanted. He's not serving out of delight, not out of love for God or others, but out of love for self. Elizabeth Elliot, if you've never read anything by Elizabeth Elliot or know anything about her story, I would encourage you to go find some of the things that she's read and hear who she is. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal Christian. Um, she tells this story. It's an apocryphal story. It's a made-up story about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is gathered with his disciples, and he looks at his disciples, and he says to them, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He doesn't tell them Why? And he doesn't tell them what size. And so Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, uh, thinking he's really smart, he says, okay, I'll grab a stone. So he goes and he grabs a little pebble and he puts it into his pocket. And then Jesus looks at all of his disciples and he says, now follow me. So they go wandering around, they're walking, and it's about lunchtime. And so he tells all of his disciples, he says, okay, I want you all to sit down. Now pull out the stones that you've been carrying. And he turns them all into bread. And he says, lunch is served. And Peter's holding his crumb from his, his pebble. And so he eats barely anything. And then Jesus says, okay, now I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And Peter's thinking to himself, oh, okay, I see how it works now. And so he passes the, the medium-sized rocks and the big rocks, and he finds like a small boulder. And he lifts, he picks up this, this boulder, and he puts it up on his shoulders, and everyone grabs their stones, and, and Jesus says, okay, now follow me. And so they go wandering around as they're walking, and now it's dinner time, and they come up to this hillside with this stream, and Jesus says, okay, sit down, pull your stones out, and now throw them into the water. So they all throw them into the water. Peter, with his hernia, chucks his into the water. And then Jesus says, all right, let's stand up. Follow me. And Peter's looking confused and distraught. He's kind of dumbfounded. Jesus notices this, and he looks at Peter, and he sighs, and he just says, do you remember what I asked you to do? Would you carry a stone for me? 
Peter, who were you actually carrying the stone for? One of the best ways to see how much of this elder brother-ness and tendency is in us is how do you respond when your serving doesn't get the reward that you were hoping for? Maybe you're not thanked enough. You're not appreciated enough. You're not platformed enough. Now, goodness, in our church, we want to outdo one another in showing honor. We do want to do it. But what happens? What, what, What goes off in your heart? Maybe in serving God, it doesn't accomplish what you think is enough. It's not worth it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't steward our time. Maybe in giving, like maybe you're giving, maybe you're sacrificing, maybe you're serving, maybe, maybe this, maybe God didn't answer your prayers the way you wanted them answered. But God, look at my tithe record. I showed up, I showed up to church, I volunteered. I, maybe it's this, maybe, maybe, maybe your kids didn't turn out the way you wanted. But I did it all right. Maybe your marriage isn't where you want it. God, but I woke up and I, I, I read the power of a praying wife. Why is my husband still like this? Not, not funny, okay. Um, <laughs> I read the power of a praying husband. Said no husband any, ever. Um, Is it on ESPN? But you did it all right, and life didn't go the way you wanted to. It's like, what's the point of keeping the rules? What's the point of being upright and moral? What's the point of slaving away from, for God if he won't give me what I actually want? Tim Keller says it like this. If, like the elder brother, you seek to control God through your obedience, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make him give you the things in life you really want. Then he goes on in his book, The Prodigal God, and he tells this story. Um, Here's this example from Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus, um, the story of, of Mozart. And there's another composer in the story named Salieri. And Salieri became a very good composer, and in the play, it goes back to a vow that Salieri made when he was just a young boy. He, he wanted to be a successful composer, so he makes this vow, and he says to God, he says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Let me be famous. In return, I vow, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility in every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Salieri kept his vow. He stayed away from women. He worked really hard. He tirelessly helped the poor. And he became an accomplished composer. It felt like God was keeping his bargain too until Mozart shows up. Um, whose middle name, I didn't notice, that his middle name Amadeus means beloved by God. And Mozart's gifts far surpassed Salieri's, even though Mozart was debased and ridiculous and a womanizer. He was the young son in the story. And Salieri, this was really difficult for him. He's like, I've kept my vow. What's the point of doing all the things I'm doing? And you'll give all these gifts to this guy who doesn't deserve them. And so finally, Salieri says to God, after being so frustrated, after slaving away, says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. The elder son's anger, it makes sense when you hear why he slaved the way he did. It wasn't out of love for the father, was out of love for himself. He could not handle his younger, undeserving brother. And he, the younger brother was undeserving, getting anything good because he operated. This is, this is what we do when we're elder brothers, when we have this sort of pharisaical bent to us. 
We operate with a worldview that believes good people deserve good things. And bad people deserve bad things. And moral people deserve better things than the immoral people. So we, 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 we don't understand grace. And goes on in the text, but when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is connected for sure with this last point of serving God, slaving for God in order to get things from God. I did it all right. How come he gets the fattened calf? I deserve better because I am better. What the brother is doing here is he's actually keeping score. He's keeping track of like, here's, here's the, the, my young brother's scorecard. Here's his grades. And here are my grades. He gets D's at best. He gets F's. He gets NC's. I get straight A's. Why did he get a better reward? Early in my marriage to my wife who stayed with me and is the biggest display of God's grace in the history of the world, um, I decided that I thought it would be a good idea to keep track of who did more of the chores. Premarital, premarital didn't work out very good. Um, for a month, I was like, I'm going to track it. Who did the chores? I keep track. Who yelled the quickest? Kept track. Who was quickest to forgive? Kept track. Who's the biggest idiot? So, so, I, so, I, so I, I, I kept track, and then I presented my findings. I presented my, okay, I just, truth is our friend. Um, And I just watched my wife cry. Man, I was an idiot. And I stopped keeping track. I stopped keeping track, except I haven't stopped keeping track. I don't write it down anymore, but I still replay it in my head all the time. I don't often think of myself as the elder brother, which is probably why I'm so much more an elder brother than I think. I don't do it with all of you as much as I do it with my kids, and most tragically with my wife. Comes out in lots of subtle ways, not through journaling, but where I'm still tracking performance. Who was calmer in the fight? Who was quicker to wake up and make the coffee? Who, who, who unloaded the dishwasher? Who, who, who pursued the other person when there was friction? Who, who, who absorbed more of the venom? Who calmed the people? Who, 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 who parented better in this situation? Who, who read more of their Bible? To, I don't think we compare that one. But I mean, the, but, but all these other ones, I, I began as I, as I was looking at this text, I was so deeply convicted. Just like the elder brother. Look at all the ways I'm excelling. And then you go on this fault-finding mission. Look at all the ways this other person is failing. You know, you see that with this elder brother. What, you know, what about this? What if he said, oh my goodness, he's back? Oh, he is an idiot, but praise God, I love my idiot brother. Where's the party? Yeah, he messed up. He really messed up, but he came back. What about like, oh my goodness, this is my dad? What kind of, look at the, look at the father we have that would restore his brother so quickly. Man, I want to be more like my dad. I suppose to look how much of a loser my brother is. All this internal boasting of my own goodness is just, nauseating. It's nauseating. Here's, here's what it is. I'm Rob. Say, it's nice to meet you, Rob. Nice to meet you, Rob. I have a self-righteous superiority complex. It's true. 
It's true. It's true. Maybe it is for you too. Listen to how Keller summarizes the condition of an elder brother. And the prodigal guy says this, elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger towards life circumstances, hold grudges long and bitterly, look down on people of other races, religions, and lifestyles, experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery, have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, and have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. What a terrible picture. And it is terrible. And it comes in degrees, let's be honest. I bet most people in this room would not stay out at the party. But what flinches happen when people sin in ways you don't sin and struggle with things you don't struggle with and make mistakes that you didn't make? What do we do if we see ourselves in this text? I went through the Gospel of Luke and I read, this last week I went through and I read all the interactions that Jesus has with Pharisees. I wanted to see, could I find any, is there any common thread that, that, that caused the way they behaved, that caused the way they reacted? Was there, is there, is there one common disease that, that caused the rest of the symptoms? Is there one cancer in their hearts that if left unchecked will metastasize and destroy the rest of the body? And I think if you go back and you read through the Gospel of Luke and all the interactions with the Pharisees, I believe there is, and I think it's obvious. Elder brothers, Pharisees, they don't believe they need grace as much as other people do. That's it. They don't believe they need grace as much. Ah, they need it a little. They don't believe they need mercy as much. They, they don't believe they need help as much. They, they, they kind of believe that they're where they're at because of how hard they've worked and what they've done. They just don't believe they need grace as much as other people, and so they don't celebrate when other people receive grace. Luke 5, 27 through 32, we'll read a few texts. After this, he went out, speaking of Jesus again, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Elder brothers don't think they're sick. Luke 7, 36 and following, a little bit longer section. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I bet if you go and ask this woman, she wouldn't say, I'm slaving for Christ. All of this serving, all of this doing, look how demanding he is. Oh, she just loves him because of who he is and what he's done and the grace he's given and the debt that he's paid. See, the problem with elder brothers, the problem with me, the problem with Pharisees that don't want to be that stumble into it is we just don't think our debt's that big. Our kids have a bigger debt. Our spouse has a bigger debt. Our coworker has a bigger debt. Those people that believe things that we don't believe that don't go to church have a bigger debt. Just give you one more text. Luke 7, 29 through 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. How did they do that? Not having been baptized by him. This might feel like a strange passage to read in light of what I just said. Let me try to draw it together quickly for you. If you go back to Luke chapter three, you'll hear about this guy named John who was a prophet of God, a front runner of Christ, who's trying to prepare people to receive Jesus, to come to faith in Christ. And he came and he, he, he conducted a, a, a baptism, a, a kind of a public washing. And, and he declared it this way. He says, he, I'm coming to give you a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. So the question is, why didn't the Pharisees get baptized by John? They didn't think they needed to. They didn't think they needed to repent. They didn't think they were that sinful. They knew they were flawed, but it wasn't that much. Not like all those other sinners. They didn't know how sick they were, so they stayed away from the physician that could heal them. They didn't know how much of a debt they had, so they look at service to God as slavery instead of adoration. So what's the cure? What's the cure before the cancer of white-knuckle Christianity and self-righteous superiority takes over? It's this. It's grace. It's grace perfectly presented to us in what's known as the gospel, the story of how God reconciles anyone to himself, young brothers that go wandering and elder brothers that stay outside the party, the story of Christ, the true elder brother coming to earth and doing what we were meant to do, obeying all that we were designed to do and failed to do and then taking our curse upon the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, going to the tomb and rising again. And when we believe that, to the extent we believe that, our hearts get melted. See, the gospel is this, and I'm just gonna be straight with you. You and I are more flawed, broken, rebellious, and sinful than we even want to imagine. And I know that's offensive. It's meant to be. But in the gospel, we are more loved, pursued, befriended, claimed, cleansed than we dare dream. And to the extent you believe that, you'll go into the party. You'll go into the party. You'll be be the first into the party. You'll be the first one dancing. You know, most weddings, like, it takes a little while for someone to go out and dance. You're going to be like that crazy uncle. (laughs) Woo! Start doing the worm, you know, just (laughs) middle-aged men doing the worm. It's the greatest. 
And you're going to dance and dance and dance until the party gets shut down. You're going to tell everybody you know about this party. You know, what's so sad, too, is the, you know, the elder brother, he's like, I slave for you. You want to give me a young goat? You know what he did? He stayed outside the party when he could have come in and had the better feast of the fattened calf. He messed out on the better party. Don't miss out on the better party. You don't have to slave for God to get something. Look what he says to the son. All that I have is yours. It's already yours. I've already given it. What keeps us from becoming the elder brother? Grace and grace alone. Again and again and again. When you don't want to forgive your spouse, grace and grace alone. When you're angry at your kids, you're angry at your parents, grace and grace alone. When your coworkers are really frustrating you, resign. Um, <laughs> oh, grace and grace alone. Grace and grace alone. Let the grace of God and the work of Christ so melt your hearts. You can't help but celebrate when anyone gets found child of God by grace and grace alone, born again by grace and grace alone, heaven citizen by grace and grace alone, stand in faith by grace and grace alone. We will run the race by grace and grace alone. We will slay our sin by grace and grace alone, and we will reach the end by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us the grace and the gift to believe this text more than we ever have, to trust in your grace more than we ever have, not for self-loathing, just for a removal of self-important pressure. God, I truly was deeply convicted this last week. I was blindsided a bit, frankly, by how much elder brother is still in me. I want to ask your forgiveness. So I've already asked it to my wife. And I pray that the pursuit of the father, not just for the wayward son, but for the angry son, for the self-righteous son. God, I pray in this room it would create a, a buffer or ability or an invitation for anyone in this room whose hearts flinch condemnation or hearts flinch pride to fill your embrace and to come into the party. God, you're just too, you're, you're, you're too good for us to stay angry. You're, you're too gracious for us to, to feel enslaved. You're too generous for us to keep working our fingers to the bone. You don't ask us to. You've already given us everything in Christ. God, I pray that you would mend some relationships out of today, God. I pray that you would bring some convictions, but because of Christ, for anyone here who's in Christ, there would be no condemnation. And that we wouldn't be satisfied with the young goat, but we come into the better party to feast on the better celebration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We're going to respond as we do every single week as the band comes up and, and gets set. We're going to respond by receiving communion. We're going to sing a couple songs together so you don't need to feel rushed right now. Um, there's four stations set up. There's juice and bread on this side, um, wine and juice and bread. There's juice and bread on this side. There's wine and bread on this side. There's some single serve options in the back. Wherever you go to, to receive communion, it re represents the same thing. That Christ 
the true elder brother gave the very best himself. That however much wrong we've done, however much running we've done, the Father wants to welcome us back. No matter how much we've tried to be moral and upright to earn something from the Father and grumbled and been angry, that he wants to bring us in. So in this church, the, the only barrier to coming to communion is, is, is just faith and, and repentance, just a turning from running from God. However, you, if you've been running through your self-righteousness and you've been running through your good works, turn back to him and repent of how you've tried to earn before him. If you've been running through running and rebellion, turn back to him. And what's great is you're going to go to this table and just your empty hands. You're going to take a piece of bread and the juice or the wine representing Christ's body and blood. As you hold these, all that he's done, just hear the Father's words, all that I have is yours, my dear son or my dear daughter. Let's feast and let's party. Feel free to go to communion as you feel led. Stand and sing with us as you feel led.